0: Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, we come now to this text, and it's an emotional text. Father, we come recognizing that though we've just heard the word read in a language we understand, we need more than physical understanding. We need spiritual understanding. We need you to Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law. We need you, O oh God, to work in our hearts by your Spirit, to teach us and train us and correct us and rebuke us for righteousness' sake. O oh God, our heart's desire is to be more like Jesus. Would you, through the preaching of your word, make us more like him? Father, be with your people, I pray. That even in the face of this, the great judgment, that they would find comfort and hope and even joy in Jesus. And Father, would you help me, your servant? Would you protect me from error? May the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before he became a missionary to Burma in the early 1800s, Adoniram Judson had an experience that changed his life forever. Having been raised in a Christian home by faithful parents, Judson went on to reject that faith After coming under the influence of an upperclassman philosophy major in college named Jacob Eames. On Adoniram's 20th birthday, he told his parents the distressing news of his apostasy, of his turning from the faith. And he announced that he was moving to New York City to pursue a life of wealth and pleasure. During his travels... Judson stopped at an inn and found that the only room available just so happened to be next to a man who was in the throes of death. And that night as he listened to those terrible cries and the the restless struggling of the man next door, he found himself wrestling inwardly as well tormented by the despair that he heard in this man's cries, he began to wonder, is this man prepared for death? Am I prepared for death? You know, his newfound philosophy had taught him that death was nothing. It was just a door to an empty pit, an entrance to nothingness. That brought him no comfort at this moment. So during the night, his mind, he said, worked like a pendulum swinging back and forth between wondering what his friend Jacob Eames on one side and his parents on the other would say to him to try to ease and even assuage his mind and conscience. But try as hard as he may, he couldn't escape this fear, this anguishing fear that was building up within him, a fear of... Of judgment beyond death, that there was something on the other side. Well, by dawn, the morning, the sounds of struggle next door had ended. And Judson collected his things and got ready to leave. And on his way out, he passed by the innkeeper and he asked about the man, what happened to him? And the innkeeper said, He's gone, poor fellow, he's dead. Do you know who he was? Judson asked. Oh, yes, I know. He's a young man from the college in Providence. Name was Eames. Jacob Eames. I don't know Judson was stunned. So stunned that he, he writes that he sat there speechless and motionless for hours. It took a while, but what happened that night led him on a divine path to return to his first love. To experience the hope and joy and forgiveness and to give his very life in service to his king. Traveling, as many of you know his story, to what was the ends of the earth. To make sure that all those there knew the way to escape the judgment that was indeed to come. As we come this morning to John's continuing account of his vision of the last day, we're also faced with a judgment. In fact, you could call it the judgment, the final judgment that is to come. And even though Satan himself will indeed be destroyed on the final day, and remember, this is a reality we saw last week, You can see it there in verse 10. Remember, Satan is going to assemble an army on that day. This is that last battle that we've seen several times in the book of Revelation. He's going to assemble an army, and it's all going to be in his ongoing attempt to overthrow the king, to put an end to Jesus and his reign. Even though he will do that, he's going to be destroyed in an instant. There really is no battle. He will be destroyed. But he's not the last enemy to be destroyed. He's not the last one. You can turn there if you want. First Corinthians 15, 24 through 26. six. First Corinthians 15, 24 through 26. In the end of days, it says Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power reigning until he has put all enemies under his feet. And then look what it says in verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This morning, we see the demise of this last enemy. But first... But first, we have to come face-to-face. Just like Adoniram Judson did, we have to come face-to-face with a sobering reality. I know many of you are taking notes, and if you are, this sobering reality is going to be our first point. So if you want to write it down, our first point is the reality, you might even call it the sobering reality, of coming judgment. The reality of coming judgment In the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, Jesus had said that when the Son of Man comes in his glory, a time that we do not know when it will be, but when the Son of Man, that's Jesus' title for himself used most often, when I come in glory, he says, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. When he comes, he will sit on, on his glorious throne. This coming day of judgment is an inescapable reality, not just talked about in Revelation, but even Jesus himself talked about it. Commentator Bruce Milne warns us, and I want to quote he says, despite the humorous dismissal of the last judgment in our culture, its comparative neglect in most theological reflection, And the virtual silence on the subject in most modern day pulpits, it is going to happen. It will happen, he says. You see, whatever clever arguments against this day or conjured denial of this day may be employed to urge us away from an expectation of this coming judgment, the passage before us upholds the truth that this day is coming In fact, it's the passage that we stand on when we say things like we do in our creeds, like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, where we confess that Jesus Christ will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. He will come to judge the living and the dead. And this truth is made crystal clear right here in the text before us. I want you to notice from verse 11 That in the presence of Jesus, even the earth and the sky, what does it say? It flees away. It, It runs away. This language, it's reminiscent of what we saw in Revelation 6. You might remember there when Jesus, that picture of his return and that cycle that shows us this, that picture. Remember the sky vanished like a scroll the sky was rolled back like a scroll that is coming and this language of the sky rolling back and things vanishing and fleeing away is meant to to highlight the cosmic upheaval that results that results here in this fallen world when the absolute, holy, and infinitely majestic God comes, the Son, the Father, and they come and they're on the throne and they're right here dwelling here before this time of judgment. Do you not see that even that causes this sinful world to flee, to run away? It can't stand before him. In verse six, Excuse me, in chapter six, the people on earth, if you remember when the sky was rolled back, they were described as unable to hide from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. They were unable to hide. Do you remember what they did? (laughs) They ran to the mountains and cried out, fall on us, fall on us. They can't hide. So here too, we find There's no retreat. There's no retreat from the reality of the final judgment. For all, all will stand before the throne. Just as our text makes clear, it makes a reference to the great and the small. No one's too big for this one. No one's insignificant. Everyone will stand before the throne. There's this mention of those lost at sea. Right? This is a picture, of very common in this time, that people would die at sea, their boat would sink, you'd never see them again. Well, they don't even know, are they alive, are they not? We don't know what happened to them. Well, the idea here is, is even those who we may not know, they are still going to be coughed up, right? They will still be brought to this judgment. They didn't escape it that way. All those, all those who have died, even those alive at that moment, all of us will stand before him. All of us will stand before the throne. Each and every person who's ever lived will stand before the throne to be judged. The text is very clear. To be judged verses 12 and 13 both make it clear that they we will be judged according to what they have done you will be judged according to what you have done and also in verse 12 did you notice this there's all this talk about books it appears in verse 12 that all that has ever been done are recorded in those books Because this is judgment, we take that to be sins. These sins are recorded in these books, and these books are going to be opened, and in them will be the record of all that has been done, all the sins, and this is the evidence that's going to be put into the trial before the judge. Here it is. Here's the evidence. Now, that's a sobering thought, isn't it? It's terrifying, actually. I mean, just think about the lengths that we go to in order to excuse our sin, even to deny our sin. And then think about this. The righteous judge of the universe knows every single one of them. He knows every single one of them. And not only are they recorded in these books, but these books will be open before all creation and before this Throne, where the majesty himself sits on. So I want you to imagine for a moment that all the sinful words, all the sinful thoughts, and all the sinful deeds that you've committed only today. It's not even noon yet. We've all sinned. Imagine that they were written down. Now imagine that that list was published online for the whole world to see right now. What would you want to do? Hide. That's right. You'd want to crawl in a hole and hide yourself. But the point is clear. On this day, there's nowhere to hide. Nowhere to go to get away from the one on the throne And not only will the guilt for these sins be brought to light, but the shame of these sins are going to be exposed as well because we'll have nowhere to go. Think of Adam and Eve. They sinned. What did they do? They hid. It's kind of foolish, wasn't it? Nowhere to hide from God. Of course, we'll get to in a minute. I don't want to get there too quick, but God covered them. Praise God. But on this day, on this day, it will be what Hebrews 4.13 says is actually true each and every day. And oh, if we lived like this. It says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's true every day. God sees our sins even now. We live corum Deo, right? We live before the face of God. He sees it all. They're always exposed to him. You can never, ever hide from God. And on this day, there'll be no way to even try. No hiding. It's foolish vanity to try and conceal our sin from the reality of the coming judgment. I feel like I say this a lot in a Revelation series. Thanks for the pick-me-up, Pastor. This is hard truth, but it's truth, but it asks a big question. What hope is there? If all my sins are known by God, and if I, you, all of us, all of mankind must stand before him on that final day and be judged for all that we've ever done, then how? How can we possibly be saved from the wrath that those sins deserve? How is it possible? In in the face of this terrifying reality, what hope is there that we can be spared? Here's our second point this morning. The escape from coming judgment. Judgment. There is an escape from coming judgment. And praise God that there is indeed an escape. And that hope is found in four words. Four words in our text. It's used twice, verse 12 and verse 15. Are you ready? The book of life. The book of life. We've seen this book before. It's not the first time we've seen it, if you've been with us or if you know the book of Revelation. Uh, we've seen it two other times. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation 13.8. We're going to read that together. We're also going to read Revelation 17.8. I like it when it's that tidy. 13.8, 17.8. Man, I love the sound of your Bibles flipping. Revelation 13.8. Uh, Here, speaking of those who will worship the beast, it says in verse 8, And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So all of mankind will worship the beast except those whose names are written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And then turn over to 17, 8. Speaking again of those who worship the beast, it says in verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. The book of life. There's actually two other words in our text that are important that reference this. So it's actually three references to the book of life. Did you catch it? Another book. There's the books and then there's another book. The books and the the book of life. Praise God. For in this book, it says, looking at the whole of scripture, here are the names of those who have been chosen by God for salvation before the foundation of the world. Those who have been given to the son by the father to be redeemed by his blood. Those who have been rescued from eternal death and transferred to the kingdom of life by the regenerating power of the holy spirit those who are spared from what we read in verse 15 about those whose names are not written in the book of life those are not spared from the second death but the ones in the book of life are are spared from being thrown into the lake of fire to suffer for their sins for all eternity you see the only escape from the coming judgment is to be found in the saving work of Jesus Christ. The one in whom Paul says in Ephesians 1, 7, we read 3 through 6 earlier, but in 7, he says, we have redemption. We've been redeemed through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses, our sins, according to the riches of his grace. It is indeed true. Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not perish, but will have eternal life. I really hope that you never, ever get tired of hearing this. I really hope you never get tired of hearing this. We talk about it almost every week, don't we? We talk about grace. Talk about what Jesus has done for us. But I want you to hear it again. Hear it again. Even now, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it becomes true for you. This becomes true for you. This is true of you, Christian. On the cross, on the cross at Calvary, Jesus died in your place. He died as your substitute. He took upon himself the punishment that you deserve for your sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He died as your substitute. The wages of sin is death. but The gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Would you once again turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Verses 13 and 14, I think a, a good scriptural illustration of that which we are speaking. Colossians 2:13 and 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. It's Jesus having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In Paul's day, a prisoner would usually be held in a cell or maybe in a blockade or something, and it would be public. It wasn't hidden away in a building somewhere. And you could walk by and see these prisoners, and near them, sometimes right above the door, would be this certificate. And on this certificate would be the list of their sins that condemned them. It would be that which they had done that made them guilty. It was their record of debt. It was a testimony for everyone who came by. You'd read it. And you might even shake your fist or say, you deserve that for what you did. It was exposed for all to see. So what this text says here in Colossians 2 is that Jesus set you free from prison. How did he do it? He took that record of debt and it was nailed to the cross because he became that record of debt. He became sin for us there on the cross. And it's canceled. It's canceled. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us. He took the full force of God's wrath upon himself so that your sin is cast as far as the east is from the west. He took the full wrath of God upon himself so that you, so that I, could truly say, as we say in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So I want you to listen carefully. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you have confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord, your only escape will be the other book. Your only escape on that day will be the other book. For the God of perfect love will indeed keep no record of wrongs for you. The record of your sins will have been washed away, will have been washed away by the redeeming blood of the spotless Lamb of God. You realize that? He can't hold you to account for your sins because your sins have been paid for by his son. I want you to picture this that on that day when you would otherwise stand guilty, the judge himself will stand up and say, No, she belongs to me. He belongs to me. They are set free. Amen. Do you understand that? Do you get that? You're free. Wake up. You're free. There's no fear of this day. There's no fear. No fear of judgment. No fear of shame. No fear, period. Think about what we just sang earlier. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect Plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me, including that day. Sorry, I added that. We didn't sing that part. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Nothing, nothing can separate you from his love. And you know what makes our faith in this truth, our faith in Jesus so peculiar and so extraordinary and so wonderfully glorious? You know what it is? It's that we don't have to be afraid of coming judgment. We don't have to be afraid of it. It's sobering, right? It's a sobering reality. It it should shake us up a little bit. But we've escaped the wrath that is to come on that day. And so we can actually find comfort in the day of judgment. This is peculiar, right? This is kind of weird. But we can find comfort in the day of judgment. And this is our third and final point. So if you're taking notes, comfort. The comfort in coming judgment. For two years, I've waited we're finally going to get to chapter 21 next week okay and it's going to become abundantly clear as we finish the book of revelation and we're going to finish it in the next four weeks but what follows this coming day of judgment is so utterly wonderful and so wonderfully glorious that we can't help but find comfort in it were you not comforted when we sang of it just a few minutes ago in that new hymn I mean, do you find comfort in heaven? When you think about heaven, are you comforted? Do you find comfort in all the promises revealed to us about heaven and God's word? I do. I mean, think about this. When the last enemy, death, and its companion, Hades, which is in the way of saying the grave, right? When death and the grave, when the last enemy is destroyed in the lake of fire, are you going to rejoice? yes. To know that the curse of death no longer reigns. To know that the fallen world, which has been broken and cursed and marred by sin, is going to be restored to its Eden-like glory. To know that there's going to be no more tears no more sadness, no more sickness, no more sorrow, to know that all the wrongs are going to be made right. To know that we're going to live forever in the new heavens and new earth in the eternal presence of our triune God. To know that we're going to be able to eat from the tree of life and enjoy the eternal bliss of glory with all the other thousand generations the countless number of saints who've went on before us when we think of that man it's overwhelming right but it's glorious and when we think of that we should be comforted that's why we're studying this book because there's comfort there's comfort to come But to be able to fully embrace and enjoy this comfort, we do have to pass through that day. We do have to pass through the coming judgment. Think about gold. Gold has to be purified, right? It has to be purified of its dross before it's cast into a beautiful crown that will adore a head, right, or jewelry. We have to pass through Judgment. We're passing through it now, even on this earth, and we've talked about that already. But we have to go through that last day in order to inherit the crown of life that awaits us in heaven. But you go into it knowing that you're not going to be consumed by the fire. You know that there will be your perfect high priest who will plead for you and you'll be set free. Because you know that. You can live in abundant comfort today because you can know that that glory that awaits you on the other side, you know it's gonna be yours. And you know, you can say, I don't put any hope in my own righteousness. I don't put any hope in my own works. I don't put my hope in anything, but Jesus, Jesus only is my plea. He's my only hope in life and in death. He's my only hope, my only comfort to get through that day. So yeah, I think it's possible. I would even say that you should be comforted by the final judgment. You should be comforted. It's natural. Because on that day, death will no longer have a say. All the enemies of God will finally Be destroyed. The false Trinity, Satan and his two beasts, Babylon, even death. Even those who worship the beast, as our text makes soberly clear, all will be cast into the lake of fire. There's comfort. I understand it's not comforting for everybody. There's kind of two reasons for that. Number one, because we have a heart. As we prayed earlier, we're comforted, but then we feel selfish in our comfort because we know so many. And if you don't know, just know there's many who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if he were to return today, they would have to stand before him in judgment. If they die today, they'll stand on that day in judgment and they'll be judged and they'll be condemned. And that should absolutely break our hearts. It did for Adoniram Judson. It did for countless others. You don't have to go across the globe. You can go across the street. Some of us, it's across the room. Maybe that's why you're here today. Maybe you've been coming a long time. And maybe you've never really faced up to the reality that you're not ready. You're not ready to face death. Would you hear my words? The Lord Jesus stands ready to save. Confess your sin, repent, and believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If that's true of you today, would you come talk to me after church? I'd love to talk with you more and pray with you. If you don't feel comfortable talking to me, talk to a friend, talk to someone. Christians, there's so much going on in the world our assurance is attacked and shaken every day. It could be personal circumstances. It could be things going on in the world. It could even be somewhere in between, things that we know friends are going through. And it's hard. It's hard to face every day. I'm not going to tell you it's super easy if you just walk with Jesus, it's hard. It's hard. And though our emotions change, Jesus doesn't. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God never changes. His faithfulness endures for all generations. So Christians, would you cast yourselves upon him? I mean, this is as practical as application gets. Cast yourselves at the foot of the cross and cry out. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Give me grace. Give me strength. Help me to stand. Keep my eyes. That's my prayer. Most days, keep my eyes fixed on heaven. Set my sights on things that are above, not on the earth, so that I may be comforted with the hope of eternity. Amen. Amen.